Tomorrow's big idea is already in action today. Accenture helps organizations imagine and invent their futures, driving innovation to improve the way we work and live. Accenture. This is new. Applied now. There's a photo app called Google Photos, and in it, algorithms automatically tag photos: dog, cat, you name it. My name is Daniela Hernandez, and I'm a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and I cover science, AI, and tech. And in one instance, a set of users realized that the app was tagging photos of African American people as gorillas. John Giandrea leads search and artificial intelligence at Google. When we spoke to him in February, he told us the company was mortified by this and apologized publicly. But the reality of these machine learning systems—they don't have quote 100% precision. You have to be very careful what you use them for. But the way that it stopped doing that, as Wired reported recently, is that the tag for gorilla was just removed from the algorithm, and so the algorithm didn't tag gorillas for anything. And it just goes to show that AI systems have a ways to go, and that its engineers don't always get it right. Algorithms could help us improve access to healthcare, education, housing, and other services. But just how accurate are these mathematical formulas? And How fair? This episode: What happens when the technology we rely on to be objective turns out to have some serious flaws and very human biases? This is the future of everything. A look ahead from the Wall Street Journal. From the newsroom in New York, I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is the future of everything. So my name is Kate Crawford. I'm a distinguished research professor at NYU, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, and the co-founder of the AI Now Institute. The term AI is used so broadly; it can refer to a whole host of things. Some of those techniques have been developed over 30 to 40 years, and some are much newer. And those newer techniques tend to fall in this category that's referred to as machine learning. And we see machine learning in all sorts of places. It's happening on your phone. It's guiding the sorts of news that you're seeing. It, it guides who's getting a loan, whether somebody gets a job. In fact, it already drives many of the products and services we touch. Every day, when you look at your newsfeed in Facebook, that's being driven by some pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence. Amazon, when it makes recommendations about the sorts of books you should buy or the TV shows you should watch, this is also a form of machine learning that fits under this broad rubric of AI. But it's also being used in government. We're seeing it in criminal justice, in risk assessment algorithms, in predictive policing systems, and that's across the U.S. But it's also influencing our education system. Through, say, new teacher evaluation tools, and also the sorts of things that you used to have, you know, a career counselor advise on, there are now sort of AI or proto AI systems that are actually helping advise on that. And this is just what journalists and researchers have uncovered so far. There's no requirement that governments or companies disclose their use of automated decision making. In many cases, you simply won't know when these systems are being used to decide whether or not you get a job or whether or not somebody gets out of jail. They are, in many ways, an opaque and invisible. And I think this is something that's actually starting to concern many of us. That's partly because we often assume these large data systems are objective. Even somehow superior to humans. 
This is actually a well-known phenomenon. It has a name. It's called automation bias. And it's been shown in all sorts of places, including intensive care units, in nuclear power plants, that if you said to people, look, this is a computer, it's extremely advanced, and it's making this decision, you should believe it. People will believe it even when they see that it's producing errors. So we really need to, I think, work against it. And that's particularly true for public agencies and also for large companies when they're making systems that will influence millions, if not billions of people every day. She says the first step is to respect the public's right to know when a system is impacting their lives. Also, recognize this isn't just a tech issue. You essentially wouldn't expect a judge to be able to fine-tune a deep neural net. You shouldn't expect an AI engineer to understand the specifics of the criminal justice system. But right now, that's the situation that we have, which is that essentially very highly trained engineers who come from a very specific computer science background are being asked to design systems that are influencing our most sensitive social institutions, from healthcare to criminal justice to education. Police officers in Chicago are combining surveillance video, gang-related data, and software to predict where crimes may occur. It's called predictive policing, and Shabani Matani covers it for the Wall Street Journal. I'm standing here outside of City Hall, where the mayor of Chicago has spent over $10 million on these predictive policing tools, tools like ShotSpotter. It tells officers when and where a gun was fired. There's also an algorithm that predicts where crimes may happen next. And she says precincts monitor all this from nerve centers where the technology is housed. So in these rooms, you see all these maps up, and they have different blocks on them, different color-coded blocks. And those basically are showing a police officer where a certain crime would happen next. It could be a burglary, it could be a homicide, and that's how the officer will plan his date. So he'll basically patrol around that area more than he normally would have if that algorithm, you know, hadn't told him, go to this spot. When I was there in one of these policing nerve centers, you know, I saw them watching what they thought was a a suspected drug house, and they were using that as evidence to build a case against them. She says officers feed this information to the state's attorney in real time, and that means a case can be built against someone before they're even brought to court. Something else controversial is the strategic subjects list. So that doesn't just predict where crime will happen next, which leans on you know crime data and, and looks at other factors like, say, the weather or proximity to a liquor store. This strategic subjects list predicts who will be committing the crime. So that uses someone's gang affiliations, what's known about them, you know, open source social media, and so on. People are obviously worried about the civil liberties implications of that, especially because the algorithm has been kept secret. There have been a number of lawsuits, but Chicago has very much credited these predictive policing tools for a drop in in murders and, and crime in the city in general. And now she says it's being exported to other cities. LA was the first to revolutionize this predictive policing model to, to use that tools and that technology. And now Baltimore, too, is trying to learn from Chicago and from LA. I think there's a sense that these predictive models are going to be the future of policing and that AI is going to be a much bigger factor when it comes to making policing decisions. These technologies are not just being deployed in the U.S., In China, the government uses AI, including facial recognition, to track its citizens. There's lots of different ways that algorithms can be biased. Kathy O'Neill is a mathematician, data scientist, and the author of a best-selling book about this problem. Weapons of Math Destruction is a book 
in which I explain that algorithms are not inherently better than humans. They are not more objective. They're not less biased. They're in fact picking up the bias from the humans that make them as well as from the data that is collected by humans to train the algorithms. This may be obvious, but AI can only learn from data that exists. So this data will reflect human history with all its biases. I often use the Facebook news feed as an example of bias in the sense that it is optimized to keep us on Facebook, but it's not optimized to truth or to, for that matter, civic engagement or reasonable conversations. It is, in fact, optimized to outrage. Most of the algorithms she talks about in the book are secret. That's because they're owned by companies and they're proprietary. And people do not understand them, or nor can they access them if they have a question. And even if there's a mistake made, people don't know enough about how the system works to question it or to appeal it. There's also the assumption that algorithms mirror reality. In some sense, that's true. They do describe the reality for which data is collected. We collect data on arrests. We don't collect data on crimes. If you think about it, you know, you might think, oh well, arrests are good proxies for crimes. They're really not. Only a little bit more than half of murders actually end up in an arrest, and very, very small percentages of other kinds of crimes, depending on the crime category, end up in an arrest. So, for example, the average person smoking pot doesn't get arrested, even in a state where it is illegal. So you have to think to yourself, "Oh, right, it's just what's called a proxy for the thing we're actually trying to measure, the crime, and therefore it doesn't really tell the whole story." Because the missing data can create blind spots, which benefit some and harm others. There's a very strong racial gap between the kinds of crimes that lead to arrest for white people versus the kinds of crimes that lead to arrest for black people. Just keeping with the example of smoking pot, blacks and whites admit to smoking pot at essentially the same rates, but blacks are, are arrested four or five times more often than whites. And she says these algorithms use the same characteristics that humans use to discriminate. They're using class. They're using gender. They're using race. And what they're basically doing is dividing winners from losers. Those predicted winners are given more and better options than the predicted losers. If you think about how that works in concert with each other, all these different algorithms all doing the same thing, it's not just predicting the lucky people, predicting the winners. It's actually causing those people to be luckier, causing them to be winners.、Um, and in that sense, they're they're directly affecting inequality and exacerbating inequality. But we also need to remember it's humans who give algorithms power, and that often happens in very important moments, like getting into college or getting a job or keeping your job. We're also starting to use them to suss out child abuse, to figure out which kids are at the highest risk, and help decide which families should be investigated. I'm Rachel Berger. I am the chief of the Division of Child Advocacy at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh of UPMC, and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh. Many more kids die in this country from neglect and abuse each year than from cancer. We have close to 2,000 children a year who die of child maltreatment. The children who nearly die—we call them near fatalities—are probably tenfold higher than the number who die. So this is really a public health epidemic. She was the research lead on a White House commission about this problem. The question is, how do you pick out the ones that need the services of child protective services? And so I like the idea of predictive analytics because it brings science to a field that traditionally, I think, was like medicine was 20 years ago, where it was all about expertise. 
right? Physicians still use their expertise and their experience, but it's supplemented by a clinical guideline. There are always concerns when you're using big data in this way, but I think we have to remember children are dying for years and years with really no improvement. So we have to do something. I think to say that we're not gonna do anything because there are some concerns here is not the right approach. This part of Pennsylvania became the first place in the world to let an algorithm help social workers decide which children are at the greatest risk. Hi, I'm Erin Dalton. I'm a deputy director at the Allegheny County Department of Human Services. We're in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. That's Pittsburgh. Their child abuse hotline gets about 15,000 calls a year, and there's only resources to investigate about half. So this is a place where we thought the data we are already collecting could really help inform worker decision-making. And our workers there are call screeners who sit at the hotline every day processing 80 to 100 calls, having to make those, those decisions. This data comes from a whole host of government programs, including child welfare, mental health services, drug and alcohol treatment, criminal justice, even school and medical records. Um, there are other places where uh, we think analytics can be helpful. In homeless services, who is the most likely to become homeless in, say, the next year? What could we do in order to disrupt that so that they don't become homeless or don't need um, those kind of supportive housing services? I'm Katie Arve, I'm a child welfare practice analyst. What we're looking at here is our kid system, which is the system that we use to record child welfare cases and referrals. This is how it works. The call screener rates the risk and safety, and then they view the family screening score, which I just clicked on now. So the score came up, and in this particular instance, the father was homeless and without appropriate housing for himself and his son. Stanford University is evaluating if it works and if it's fair. The county is also working with an ethicist. Other states are watching this program closely, and jurisdictions in Colorado and California are looking to build something similar. So I'm Virginia Eubanks, and I'm the author of a book called Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. She studies how data mining and algorithms may impact the working class. What happens if designers do everything right and we still produce systems that might be really dangerous for poor and working class families? The thing that I think is most interesting about the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is that they have done everything right. That's because this system is transparent. We know it's in the algorithm, and it's owned by the county, not a corporation. They also involve their community from the start. But she says one of her big concerns with all of these systems is a philosophy that she says sees human decision-making as opaque and impossible to understand, but computerized decision-making as transparent and trustworthy. And one of the arguments I make in the book is, of course, human decision-making is not that hard to understand. Like, we can talk to each other, and I fear sometimes that we are using these technologies as empathy overrides, where we're asking machines to make decisions for us that are just too hard for us to make as human beings. I don't want to be the caseworker making the decision of who among thousands of people gets access to a, a limited resource. But also as a society and as a culture, I don't want us saying that's too hard for us to do, so let's let a machine do it. Because it keeps us from having to address the real issues at the heart of these problems.
outside of academia and the companies, there is a lack of understanding of what these systems are, what they can do, how they're built. The Wall Street Journal's Daniela Hernandez. There needs to be, in the minds of some, more involvement from government, not just in their use of these systems, but their regulation. And so there's definitely need for more conversations between the private sector and the public sector around these issues. During the Obama administration, there was a series of events, a report around AI and its future impacts on jobs and discrimination, etc., that got that conversation started. And I think people are waiting for more on that. Even though this conversation, a lot of the time, revolves around software, many people in the community, in the AI community, would also say that this, at the end of the day, is is about people, people that these systems affect. And the people who are building them, and you know, sometimes those are not mutually exclusive, and so that's why people want them to be more open, and for the engineering force to be more diverse. It's a civics lesson that we're going to be having in the next year or so. I'm former New York City Councilman James Vaca. I was chair of the Council's Committee on Technology. We're here now on Edwards Avenue in the Bronx, New York, and it was a district that I represented for 26 years as district manager, and then 12 years as a New York City councilman. New York will be the first to study bias in the algorithms used by its police, courts, and city agencies. We're often not clear about this. We know data is always used, and we know technology is used. That data and that technology creates algorithms which agencies depend on, but the public has no idea what the algorithms are. They don't know what data went into the algorithm that determined actions taken by the government. The legislation I got passed is about sunlight. I believe sunlight is the best medicine for ethics and for transparency and accountability. I think the more the public knows when it comes to their day in and day out decision making process, I think the better off we are. It's we, the public. We are supposed to have input into the decision making process. We are a representative democracy. The future of everything is a production of the Wall Street Journal. The show is produced by Laura Sim. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. Stan Parrish is the editor in chief of The Future of Everything. This episode was co-produced by the Wall Street Journal's Daniela Hernandez, with special thanks to Shabani Matani, George Downs, Harminder Bara, and Zolan Kano Youngs. That's it for season two, but we're excited to say that starting in April, we'll be coming to you weekly. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong from the newsroom in New York.